But before I do, right, you know, I talked, one of the thrills of my life is talking to you all on Sunday and Saturday and having lunch with you. I really discovered, I really enjoy talking with you and meeting up with you, right? And one of the conversations I had with a brother last week, this brother, his name will remain, you know, anonymous. This brother got a new car, new electric car, right? And we're talking about an electric car. And I said, and he said, what's that car like? He said, it's great. He said, it's great. I charge it before I leave for office, and I charge it when I get back. Zero gas mileage. He was so excited about the fact that he has a chargeable car that saves fuel and protects the environment. And I go, good for you, buddy. And this conversation, I was constantly thinking about it this week. Number one, because I think God is telling me to pray for him and his family. Because him and his family came out to my dreams a couple of days ago. I did. That was weird. Right? But number two, the idea of charging, getting your car charged, that was a really good, that just stuck in my mind. And the reason I think it stuck in my mind is because of verse 6. Verse 6 says, God gives grace to the humble. And we're going to talk about it a little bit later, but the grace here means, it means God's um, helpful gifts. God gives his helpful gifts to us on a daily basis. And we are called to be charged by his gifts daily so that we can live the Christian life. Just like my brother's car will not work unless it is constantly charged. We cannot live the Christian life without getting charged. Thanks, brother, for getting that car. Made a really good sermon illustration for me. Verse 6 says, God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. When we think about grace, all all of us, because we're very theologically astute, when we think about grace, majority of the time, we think about God's grace for us in Jesus Christ. God's saving grace to us in Jesus Christ, right? And that, and that certainly mean, that's certainly one of the main definitions of grace in the Bible, right? The, the definition of grace in regard to salvation, number one, the first aspect, this is like really deep stuff. So if you take notes, take notes. This is really good stuff, right? Here we go. Everyone take, have the notes out? Right, here we go. When inter- defining God's grace in terms of salvation, it means, number one, God's grace means God's motive of wanting God's, uh, the motive of redemption in the mind of God. Basically, in terms of saving grace, grace, first of all, signifies God's motive, God's desire to save, um, to save uh, ill-deserving, uh, ill-deserving enemies. When God is considering us, he not only considers this huge sin and, and this, oh, this destructive nature that we have inside of us. But he's also aware that we're drowning in our sins. Even though he's aware of our destructive nature, he's also aware of the fact that we're drowning and dying because of our sins. So the first aspect of God's grace is God's motive of wanting to save ill-deserving people. The second aspect of God's grace in terms of salvation is God's 
God executing his motive of salvation by sending us Jesus Christ as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Do you know the Ocean's Eleven movie? Ocean's Eleven movie, right? It's about Half the movie is about setting up their plan. They have a motive. They want to do something, and they, they're thinking about it, and they're, plan, and, and, and they're planning things before they execute, right? I mean, God's not stealing anything, but similarly, first of all, the first motive of God's grace is his motive of wanting to save people. And second, he exercises his motive by sending us Jesus Christ in this world in real time so that through him our sins will be forgiven so that through him we have a proper relationship with God. The third aspect of God's grace in terms of salvation is the changing of our changing of relationships. Now that because of Christ, the broken bridge that we have with God has been mended, has been corrected, so we have a proper horizontal relationship with God. Not only that, objectively, we, 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 are, now, we are now in the right relationship with God because of Christ. Objectively so, that's true. But there is also a subjective power, power for transformation that God's grace gives upon the sinner. When God gives us Jesus Christ and when he mends our relationship with him, not only are we in the objectively right standing with him, but the Holy Spirit energizes our internal spirits so that we will be morally conforming to the image of God. So the grace of God is also the power that the Holy Spirit energizes within us to change us from the inside out. Like the song we just sang. Show was that intentional? Maybe. Was it providence? Perhaps, right? That inside-out transformation is the visible manifestation of God's grace in our lives. How do you know you're a Christian? Have you be, are you being transformed inside out? Do you understand? That's God's grace in the light of salvation. His motive, his execution, and his transformative power. Great stuff. Do we all understand? This is Seminary 101. You can all go to seminary now because I have shared with you what's God's grace in terms of salvation. But to those whom God has saved, he shows additional grace. The additional grace that James is talking about in verse 6, like I said, here means the gracious gifts of God that he gives to his people. God gives practice, not practice, maybe practice, God gives daily grace to his people. Jesus says, do not worry about tomorrow, for you do not know what tomorrow has its own problems. Right? Focus on today. Jesus' grace is given to us daily. Jesus' helpful gifts are given to us daily. What are the helpful gifts that God, has give, God gave us for us to survive, for us to thrive? Number one, if we're saved, he gives the grace of his presence. You become aware of the presence of God in your life. That is crazy. You know, you feel, you think about his presence. He shines, oh, light of his presence in your life. And you become aware of him. 
Not only that, he gives you wisdom to live your days. Woo. Last week, beginning of the week, it was rough. I was in a dark place. View ministry in certain ways, right? But then, through podcasts, through the Bible, right? Through conversations, through prayer, especially, God gives me wisdom to change the way I start seeing things. He gives you practical wisdom. He really does. He gives us wisdom in your trials. He gives you wisdom in how you do your work. The other day, like, there was a case. I didn't know what to do about this case that I was working on. It was really hard. Right? I just, I, there's no, I felt like a magician. I have no, no more tricks up my sleeves. 1 a.m., I'm sorry, 11 p.m. I was freaking out. I go, oh, Lord, what do I do? And I started researching. And after 10 minutes of researching, I found the answer to that case. Is it from my brilliant legal mind that the answer to that case came from? No. It's a gift from God, a practical wisdom that I needed to do my job as a lawyer. He's, he, gives it, he, he gives it to me. He gives you wisdom. He gives, he gives you his presence. He gives you daily recharging. He gives you real help in real ways. Look, the other day, there was a case that I was doing, and it's like a very time-sensitive case. What makes lawyers job really stressful is the timeliness. There's always a date in which you need to file. You need to file things in a specific way, in a specific date. And this case I was working on, it was really sensitive. This case had to reach the government by a certain date with all the boxes correctly checked and all the pages of the forms properly there. It's very stressful. It's a very important case. If I mess it up, go full-time ministry, right? That kind of a case, right? I said, Lord, am I going full-time ministry? So I did it. I read through it multiple times, checked literally every, counted literally every page like 10 times. Because I don't want that case to get kicked back. I put it in the FedEx, drove to FedEx myself, and I shipped it out. Two weeks before the deadline. Guess what happened? It came back. One week, so I shipped it out two weeks before the deadline. It came back one week before the deadline. Usually when the government kicks paper back, it takes them, Emily knows what I'm talking about, when the government kicks the cases back, it takes them forever. Government doesn't operate in deadlines. Government says, oh, I'll feel, I'm sorry, not to diminish any government workers, but government is not the most, let's get this done type of people, right? Generally speaking, Emily, you're fine, right? Usually when the government kicks a case back, it takes them two or three weeks, a month maybe. But this case got kicked back in a week this case went to Texas, and it came back from Texas a week after I filed. What? My paralegal, when she looked at it, she goes, this is a miracle. How did this case came back, came back in a week? It's a miracle, she said. And what did I say? Dang, right, it's a miracle. That is an, it's one of many, many examples at work where he gives his grace to me. Are you excited? Y'all, 
God gives you real wisdom, real presence, real gifts, real everything. He gives you gifts. That's His grace. And we are called to just be recharged from God's grace, depend on God's grace as we live our lives. But the caveat of verse 6 is that this grace is given to the humble and not to the proud. This gift is given to the humble and not to the proud. Let's briefly talk about the Bible's definition of what what it means to be prideful and what it means to be humble. Prideful. Being prideful does not only mean thinking that you're better than anyone else, right? Better than everyone else. Being prideful doesn't mean that you're a Donald Trump-like figure, where everything that I do is huge, it's the most important thing, I'm the greatest Christian. That's my Donald Trump impression, by the way, right? If there's Republicans out there, I'm sorry, I've offended. But there are people like that. I know people like that. Like, who are really successful in one area of life, and because they're successful in one area of life, especially those who deal with money, if they're successful in business or finance, they think, a lot of those dudes think, they're, because they have success in one area, they think they know it all. And they think they're the most huge, the most, you know, the most awesome. There are people like that. And certainly, that's one aspect of pride. But the biblical definition of pride is more subtle than that. According to Hebert, the guy that I use a commentary, Edmund Hebert, he says, pride, in a biblical sense, is a false estimation of oneself that leads to arrogance and self-sufficiency. Basically, he means, biblical pride is, you look at life, you look at yourself, you look at other people, and you, give, you have a false estimate of what, what they really are. You have a false estimate of what the world is, you have a false estimate of what other people are. You even have a false estimate of who you, who you think you are. Even though the estimate that we have of ourselves, the world, and other people is false, or even shallow at best, we think the estimate that we have are true. We think our shallow, false estimation of reality is the actual reality. In other words, being prideful means thinking what you, what you value, what, you, what your philosophy, every, what your opinion of other people, the world yourself. You think all these opinions that you have about the world, other people, and yourself is right. That's the biblical definition of pride. You think you're right. When I go to Korea, I love riding taxis. I, 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 I love it. I love taxis more than Uber. I don't think there's an Uber in Korea. Is there an Uber in Korea, Emily? I don't think so, right? So I, I, you know why I love taxi drivers? I, I asked the taxi driver, hey, what do you think about the government? And every taxi driver gives you a long exposition of what he thinks is wrong with Korean, Korean government. Every taxi driver is a pundit, is a journalist of some sort. They give you their definition of life. And they think they're right. Everyone that I know are like that taxi driver. Everyone that I know thinks they're right. Thinks they're right. My opinion about myself, my opinion about other people, 
my opinion about Pastor Jay, my opinion about Pastor Ujin, my opinion about my own self-worth. They're all right. We have no problem judging other people. We have no problem gossiping about other people. We have no problem about being nasty to people because my estimation is right. I don't need to go to the God. I don't need to study the Bible. I don't need to go to him. I don't need to go to him at all because I'm right. One of my dear, dear brothers in Christ suffered from deep spiritual depression. And the nucleus of his spiritual depression is this. He thinks he's a worthless human being. He thinks his opinion of himself is a worthless human being. I open up the Bible, tell him that's not true. Right? He's far worse than he thinks he is, but he's far loved than he thought think he is. I tried to tell him otherwise. He went to counseling, took pills, everything that he tried to change the way he feels about himself, but at the end of the day, he couldn't do it. Because something about him tells him that his self-analysis of who he is is absolutely right. What the Bible has to say about him is wrong. What good old Pastor Jay had to say about him is wrong. What his father has to say about him is wrong. Everyone's wrong. God is wrong. Pastor Jay is wrong. The Bible is wrong. Everyone's wrong. Who is right? Me. I'm right. I think I'm worthless. I think I'm a disappointment of human being. And I'm right about me. I'm going to listen to that rather than other people and rather than God. That's pride. If, that, if you are constantly walking around satisfied with your own assessment, estimation of things, that makes you a prideful person. It doesn't matter what your exterior looks like. You can be like you and Jamie. Very nice, very you know, gentle, they don't get on your faces, right? They go, and if you, if you not here and Jamie, but if you ask me, someone go, oh, I'm a loser, I have nothing. Oh, you're better than me. Even a person like that can be prideful. It doesn't matter what your external externality is. If your internal reality is that your estimation is correct, and there is no other room for correction, The Bible says you are a prideful person and God is opposed to you. Do you experience God's grace, God's gifts in your life? Is there a presence and a sense of God? Is there a wisdom of God that that he gives you? Do you see God's grace unfolding in your life? If not, the diagnosis is perhaps because you're prideful. Because you don't go to him because you don't think you need to. Do you understand? Guys, a Christian life cannot be lived apart from God's grace. It cannot be lived apart from God's grace. I tell my unbelieving friends all the time, I don't know how you guys live without God. I don't, know, honestly, I don't honestly know how you guys do it. I don't know how you guys live. Similarly, my dear brothers and sisters, I don't know how you live without God's grace in your life. I don't know how you do it. God gives grace to the humble. Who are the humble? They're the opposite of the prideful. The humble knows 
that they could be wrong. The humble person fears the Lord, meaning they have this great reverence, real-life awesome reverence for God. They know God is the only objective measurement of truth. I can be wrong. My assessment can be wrong because God is right. The humble person walks around life. Yes, you cannot help but to make judgments because you're a human being, right? But the humble person knows that the judgment that we have about other people, about situations, about God, can be wrong. That's why you go to God in prayer, because you know you could be wrong. You know? I, th- I thought I was the wisest guy ever. Like you, I think I'm the wisest guy ever. But God, by his grace, shows me over and over again, you're wrong about things, man. Most of the time, God is showing me how wrong I am. Is, that, is he showing that to you? A humble person knows that he can be wrong because God is the only one who is right, because God is, God is the sovereign king. A humble person knows when he compares himself or herself to the right standard of God, that they fall short. The humble person knows God has his objective standard, and you cannot possibly meet it. And yet God forgives you even though you don't meet it. A humble person walks around with understanding and reality. A a humble person knows that he or she cannot live apart from God's grace. A humble person knows he or she cannot live apart from prayer. Look, did I I tell you? Like, like, you know, one of the, when I was getting ordained, one of the exam questions was, why do you, you're really busy. What's the secret of prayer? Your prayer life. And I said, that's the best answer I've ever given. The secret of my prayer life in the, in, amongst my busy schedule is I know that I cannot live without prayer. But God's grace, he makes me realize that. It's not like I'm a super spiritual Jedi, but by his grace, he makes me dependent on him. And I know that I cannot live without him. Yes, it's a struggle for me to pray sometimes. Let's be honest, it is. Right? Because after Sunday, preaching, I go home. Right? I spend time with y'all, spend time with my family, and I like, collapse for a couple of hours, and I go up and I work again. And Monday morning, I don't, want to, I don't want to pray Monday morning. And it is an absolute struggle for me to pray. And that's true. Left to my own devices, I won't. But by God's grace, he makes me realize that I cannot possibly exist without, without prayer, without depending upon him. If there are miracles in my life, if I'm seeing miracles in my life unfolding, if there's any fruit in the ministry that I'm doing, it's because I know that I cannot do it without Him. Do you have that? Do you know that you can't live without Him in prayer? When you're humble, He gives you His gifts. The best indication of whether, in my opinion, whether you're humble or prideful is whether you pray and what you pray for. Right now, I know we all like to think of ourselves humble people before God. And maybe you are. But examine your everyday life. 
Are you humble? Are you right? Are you humble? Or are you prideful? The people that James is writing this letter to has lost their dependency on God. Remember last week, he's talking to these Christians who were one of the first generation of Christians living in the Roman Empire. They're the Jewish Christians who were ostracized by their community for believing in Jesus Christ. These first Christians within the Jewish community, the Jewish community thought these Jewish Christians were following a cult. And they kicked them out. There is a real-life cost for their faith. Their confession cost something. And yet, they were quarreling and fighting amongst each other. And one of the reasons why these guys were quarreling and fighting it's because they were following their passions and not God. And they were following their passions and not God. One of the reasons, one of the, one of the ways in which you know they were following their passions and not God is their prayerlessness. James says, you have not because you ask not, which means you guys aren't praying. Or James says, you guys aren't receiving because you guys are praying for the wrong motive. Their prayerlessness and their incorrect way of praying indicates they were following the patterns of the world rather than God. Even though externally they may confess that they're Christians, in the internal way they were living their lives, James is saying, you guys are living like adulterers because you guys say that you believe in God, but in the way you live your life, you're a friend of the world. That makes you an adulterer. Once again, James is accusing the Christians, not the unbelievers, the professing Christians of being adulterers. Right? If you say you believe in God, you follow Christ, and yet your loyalties, and yet you are more in tune to following the desires of your heart rather than God, then James is saying you're an adulterer. James is using this harsh language not to condemn them, but to bring them, into, bring them back to their senses. He's saying, guys, what are you guys doing? You guys are professing faith in Christ, and yet you guys are being friends to the world. Stop it. Get out of it. Right? And perhaps he's using these words this morning to you and me to slap us so that we can, go, we can come back to our senses. James is saying, number one, stop being friend of the world, stop being an adulterer. And what does he say? In the contrary, stop being the friend of the world, stop being an adulterer. In the contrary, verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. Stop following the patterns of the world, stop following, satisfying your pleasures and passions. Submit yourself to God, he says. What is the biblical definition of submission? It is to go under the authority of someone. It is to go under the authority of God. That's what it means to be submit. The word submission also involves action. 
Submission is if you go under someone's authority, you will act in accordance to the authority that you're under. Yeah? Best example is the army. Korean army guy right here. Right? When, I'm the, when I was in the Korean army, I'm under the authority of the army. When the army tells me to do it, I can't say, no, no thanks, I can't do it. I got to do what they tell me to do because I'm under their authority. The word submission here involves action. If you're under the authority of God, James is saying, act accordingly. Look, I know we've been raised with bad theology or incorrect understanding of theology. The theology that we're raised with is the grace of God is free, and that's true. There's nothing that you can earn salvation, and that's true. But we kind of misuse that theology of thinking because we're freely forgiven by God that we think God doesn't ask me to do anything. That's not true. Bible is clear. If you're truly saved, you will submit yourself to God and you will do what he says you, he, he tells you to do. Your obedience is the evidence whether your confession is real. Do you understand? Look, this will sound really mean. I don't mean to be. For me, it's not so mean. But this is what I'm, what I'm going to tell you. Look, listen. Listen to me carefully. For those of you following this, listen to me carefully. God is not just asking you to agree with him about things. He's not just asking you to agree with, with him about your sinfulness. He's not just simply asking you to agree with him about loving your neighbors and loving the church. He's not simply asking you to agree with him in regards to sexual ethics. He's not simply asking you to agree. He's telling you to live it out. He's telling me to live it out. James is saying, my friends, you guys are fooling around with the world. You guys are acting in accordance to following your own desires. Stop it. Stop doing that and submit. Live your life in accordance to what you believe. Submit to God. He's not asking you to merely agree. He's asking you to live it out. Do you understand? When I was in the Korean army, let's say my boss says, hey, stand post in that corner right there. In the middle of the winter in the mountains of Korea, I had to, I, I had to, I had to like put five layers of clothing on and stand post for a couple of hours in the mountains. I'm a real man. And if the guy says, hey, do it, and I said, you know, I agree with the idea that you should, you should stand post. I really think that's a good idea. Because, you know, you should, be, you should guard, the, guard the base, right? I, that's a really good idea. But if I don't do it, court-martial time, right? Similarly, you do it. And let's be honest. What God has called you to do, it will be burdensome, it will be inconvenient. It will go against your appetite. It will. He's not calling you to obey when, when you feel spiritual. He's calling you to obey daily. And sometimes, like I said, the things that he's called us to do is burdensome, inconvenient, 
and going against their sinful needs, sinful, sinful appetites. But we do it anyway. Why? Because when we do, we experience his life. Look, I lack sleep, as most of you know, and sometimes there's nothing better than I, I would rather do than to be in my basement. There's a little basement room I have in my house. Oh, I have like a 20-year-old bed in there, right? I have all the store, all my kids' toys in there. It's not a very, you know, impressive room, right? It has a little 20-year-old bed and a bunch of my kids' books in there. But that's my bad cave. I love just lying down there away from the world and going to the YouTube rabbit hole. And when I'm really tired, that's what I want to do. And I was really tired this past weekend. Friday was a hectic day because there was emergencies at work. I had to like, I was like a fireman. I was like pulling out fires all over the place. Right? 7.30 rolled around, 7.30 p.m. I got to go to small group. So I go to small group. Had a blessing time at small group. As soon as small group over, came down and worked again. And then 12, 12 o'clock thing was around 12 midnight. Oh, sermon writing time. Wrote sermon until 3 a.m. Right? Slept, got up at 8, worked again. And I visited church members, their homes. Had a great time. Came back, right? Worked again. Then I took my wife to Mosaic District, right? Went to, went to Whole Foods. Went to, what? No, Whole Foods, True Foods. Talked about the truthfulness of music or something. Had a real life discussion about music. Took her to her favorite clothing store, Unlimited, Undisputed Boutique. Very good store, by the way. Bought her a jacket. Came back home. Read my daughter's, like, let, let, read my daughter's, like, writing project. And I was really impressed with her. She's a genius, I think, right? All of it, I did it. Not because I'm obligated to. I mean, there's a certain sense that I'm obligated to. But something told me on Friday night that my calling is to give myself to the people that I love, which includes y'all. So that, we, so that his life can be generated within the church and my family. Something told me on Friday night that I need to do that. I didn't want to go to small group. As much as I love the starts, look, I texted one small group, hey, are you guys having small group tonight? And they said, no, we're not. I go, oh, really? I have a way out, right? I have a way out. They're not meeting. Those unfaithful, right? I have, I have an out. But I said, no, I need to go to the Starks. And what a small group we had, Stark. I was so tired, but I had to work, which I did. And I wanted to cancel the morning visitation. I really did. But God says, nope, don't do it. You got to go. I go, okay. Came back, tired. Want to go to the back cave. My wife says, if you're busy, you don't have to take me out. <gasps> I have an out. I don't have to go. Right? I can go to the back cave. But I said, no, let's go. So I went, had a butternut squash soup, talked about music. <sighs> she was so happy. All of it in my back of the mind, my mind saying, I want to go to the bad cave. But I said, no, I submit to God's will. You know what happened? 
every meeting that I had, whether it is with the Starks, it is, whether it is with the people that I visited last yesterday morning, whether it is my wife, whether it's my daughter, there's life that is being generated from those relationships. It was amazing. Because I submitted, right? I began to experience life this weekend. That's a small example of what God has called all of you to do. God is calling you to submit. Even if you want to go to the bat cave, even if you're tired, even if you, know, you really want to watch the thing that you shouldn't watch, you submit because it is the right thing to do. Your desires and passions will say, follow your heart, follow what you want to do. Go to the bat cave. But the truth says, doing what God calls you to do is the right thing. And if you do what is right, God will bless you. You will see God's life being unfolded in your life. Guys, you have to submit to God. You have to live a life of submission. And he's not doing it because he wants to make your life difficult. No, by submitting to it, you will experience his life. Really, you really will. It's an amazing thing what I got to witness yesterday. If you're purposely withdrawing to the bat cave and not getting involved in the life of the brothers and sisters of this church, you will start to rot and the church will start to rot. That's true. I know, trust me, like in me, it's in you. You want to be comfortable. You want to maintain your boundaries. You want to not be inconvenienced. I'm t- I'm, you want to stay at home and stream this service live. You don't want to be uncomfortable. You don't want to be inconvenient. But God is calling you to carry your cross and submit. Because doing so is the right thing to do. Are you going to submit to him? Are you? You can only submit to him if you know what he's telling you to do is right and good. The reason half the time people don't submit to God is because they disagree with what God has to say. God says, submit and love your brothers and sisters. Even if it's, it's going to cost you time away from the bat cave, you submit to them. You, you reach out to them. Because it is the right thing to do. But the only way that you will do it is because if you know, if God persuades you, that's the right thing to do. Do you understand? In order to submit to God, your mind has to see that what he is calling you to do is right and good. Beckett Cook, my hero, the guy that I follow on YouTube, he gave up his life of homosexuality. For 30, 40 years, he was homosexual. In an instant, he gave it up. Why? Is it because he thought he was afraid that being homosexual will send him to hell? No. He didn't give up homosexuality, not because he was fearing hell. But he encountered God, and God told him what the right way to live is. Beckett Cook didn't go to gay conversion therapy. Becky Cook didn't go, didn't pray the gay away. 
God simply expanded his mind to see what good and right way to live is. Because he knows what God says is what God says in his word is right. He wants to live in according to it. How do you submit to God? It's not a matter of will, it's a matter of your intellectual transformation. That's where the gospel of Jesus Christ comes. You need the constant awareness of the fact that you were broken, but he forgave you and he gave his life to you. And when that awareness becomes, changes the way you think and see things, then you'll be able to submit. Submit to God, but ask him the grace to make you see what he wants you to do is right and good. Oh my God, Sean Kim, we just covered verse 7. What are we going to do? Stop here? We'll go on. Five more minutes. Five more minutes and we'll go on. Oh man, I didn't get to draw near to God part. Oh, that has to be safe for two weeks from now. Verse 7. Submit, submit yourself, therefore, to God. Do what he says. Two, resist the devil and he will flee from you. The Christian's call It's not only to submit to God, but to fight. Fight the devil. You're called to fight the devil. You're you're not called to bust ghosts, right? You're called to resist the devil. Like, I don't know, one of the churches in the local area has like a spiritual devil casting out program. I go, what what, what nonsense is this? You're going to teach me how to bust ghosts? That's not what... James has in mind when he says resist the devil. Resisting is not fighting. Oh, maybe it is fighting. But okay, resist his temptations. How do you do it? Number one, the way you resist the devil. Number one is you got to know that the devil is absolutely real. You have to know that the devil is absolutely real. How do you know? Because Jesus, our Lord, dealt with the demons more so than anyone else in the Bible. Jesus conquering the devil is, was a regular part of his ministry. If the word of life, is, if the logos dealt with the devil, it means the devil is absolutely real. The devil is, the devil is, what is the devil? The devil is, I guess there's so many notes. Satan is um, this spiritual being that is real. He is a spiritual being that is absolutely real. You need to understand that our reality is not just a materialistic, naturalistic reality. Unbelievers say that the reality that we're living in is, un- is just materialistic, natural. It means the reality that they believe the reality that we're living in is only made up of matter, right? What we can see, what we can feel, what we can touch. He's, the unbeliever says that's what reality only is, the material realm. But the Bible is clear. There is material realm. There is a material realm, the senses that we you know, you know, what our senses can detect. But there's also a spiritual realm. And then in the spirit, and the devil dwells in the spiritual realm. And the devil, number one goal, is to tempt God's people away from God. So how do you resist him? Number one, there is a spiritual force, a spiritual evil force that is actively trying to recruit you away from God. You need to understand that. 
Paul says every day is a hand-to-hand wrestling combat with the spiritual forces of this world. Paul knew for sure that Paul is calling every Christian to do hand-to-hand battle combat with the devil. Because he knows that force is real. Right? But number two, not only do you have to know that he's real, you got to know what he's about. Like I said, what he's about is to drag you away from God. And the best way that he drags you away from God is, not to, com- is to take away truth out of your life. Satan is not, you know, the haunting of Emily Johnson or something like that. Is there, is there a movie called Haunting of Emily Johnson? I don't know. Devil is just like, it's not, you know, demon slayer devil, right? With weird limbs, right? And consuming human soul. That's not what the devil is in the Bible. The devil in the Bible, his tactic, number one tactic, is to take truth away from you. How do you know? John chapter 8, Jesus tells the Pharisees, you do not believe, you do not believe in the truth. You do not know the truth, Pharisees. Because you are children of the devil, and the devil is a liar. Jesus is telling the Pharisees, y'all don't know the truth because you are followers of Satan, who is a father of lies. Parable of the sower. The first seed fell into the rocky, fell on the, fell on the road, and the devil snatched, and, and the bird snatched it up. The bird symbolizes the devil. Jesus is saying in a nutshell, what the devil does is snatching truth away from you. If the devil snatches truth away from you, all you are left is your impressions, your feelings, your desires, your false estimations. Take the word out of your life. And what, you, what are you left with? Your opinions, your feelings, your prejudices, your incorrect estimations, your incorrect judgments. That's what he's trying to do. Take it away. Then how do you resist it? You resist the devil by holding on to what he's trying to take away from you, which is the truth. One of my brothers said, if I'm away from the word, I become like a beast. And I think that's true. When the word is away, all you are left with is your feeling, impressions, and judgments. And when you're married with someone who's also felt with false estimations, impressions, and judgments, and when, you, when both people with false estimations meet and conflict, what happens? Explosion happens. When you look at like, really ugly marital fights, and I've witnessed some really ugly marital fights, it's all just untruthful, passionate nonsense that they're yelling at each other. It's void of truth. That's where Satan wants you to where, that's where Satan wants you to where you, that's where he wants you to be at. A life void of truth. How does he take truth away from you? It's very subtle, isn't it? You're tired, man. You're tired. The Bible is like kind of boring. Don't do it. Do it tomorrow. Do it tomorrow. What are the means of grace that God has given you the truth? His Bible. Really, you have, you have his word in your phone. You have the community of believers, right? Sunday worship, small group, you have the community of believers. 
Every one of those things, the, the, the devil says, don't go, don't do it, don't read. Right? Why do you go to smoke? You go to smoke because for a brief one hour, a, a week, you are exposed to his word and you are talking about his word with his people. That's what smoker is for. But Satan says, yeah, don't do that. You don't have to talk about God's word with them. God still loves you just the way you are. You don't, you don't need truth. Oh, don't come to church on Sunday to listen to God's word. You have Trevor's birthday to go to. The weather is fine. You know? These subtle everyday temptations is the way that the devil tempts you away from the truth. He's not interested in possessing you. He is not interested in making you into a monster. No, the way he makes you into a monster is evaporating truth from your mind. Resist the temptation. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 6, our weapons against the devil is prayer and the word of God. That is it, Paul says. How do you fight the devil with the word, sword of truth, and prayer? Resist him. Resist the devil by holding on to the truth. I think this is all the rebuking you can take this morning. I have so many other more things to say, but I don't think you can handle it this morning. So next week, Pastor Eugene will do it, and the following week, I will yell at us, yell at, yell, yell at us some more. But back to the back to let's go to the summary of it. You need God's grace to live every day. The fact that you're not seeking it is evidence of your pride. Repent of that. You are called to submit to him every day of your reality. Because submitting to him is right, even if it means inconvenience to you. And you need to fight a wage against the devil every day. Man, are we busy people. Man, are we busy people submitting to God and resisting the devil. But that's the call that he has called called you to live and me to live. But he's also given us the grace to do these things that he has called us to do. Let us not neglect our duties. Let us not neglect our callings. Let us go to our God who will supply us with what we need to live the life that he wants us to live. Let us pray.